in the public markets, asset spreads change daily, and quite often for no really uh, good reason, at least as it relates to the ability or willingness of the issuers to pay. In the old days, you could say Donald Trump tweets and spreads widen or tighten as a result, right? Today, it's, you know, Russia invades a country and spreads widen or tighten. Now, down the road, there may be fundamental impacts on credit from both of those events. But in the short term, it's really hard to ascertain what those are. And it's also exaggerated. Private assets don't do that. Private assets move, and they move with changes in interest rates, but they also move with changes in credit only when we see that there's going to be a write-down. So as a result, the prices move in a different pattern than public assets, and in an empirical framework that most of our clients use for allocating assets, that provides a level of diversification over and above the different asset classes we can now invest in on the private side. That was John McNichols, head of private multi-strategy investing at Barings. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Barings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and today we're aiming to answer the question of whether or not private assets can provide shelter from the metaphorical storm of rising inflation, higher rates, and geopolitical conflict. My guest today is John McNichols. John heads up a team at Bearings responsible for customizing and constructing portfolios of private assets for the firm's clients. Over the course of his 30-year career, John has served in a variety of roles, including that of credit portfolio manager with Standish and also high-yield research and head of product management with Fidelity Investments, among others. He joined Bearings in the direct lending group in 2017 And today, as head of private multi-strategy investing, he works with Bearings clients to help construct cross-asset private portfolios spanning corporate direct lending, infrastructure debt, commercial real estate debt, private asset-backed securities, private residential finance, and more. In the conversation, we discussed how the current backdrop of inflation, rising rates, and war in Ukraine is impacting allocations to private assets. We also discussed the challenge of achieving diversification in private asset classes, and we also talked about the illiquidity premium currently on offer from direct lending to infrastructure and beyond, and how that's been impacted by COVID and more recently the war in Ukraine. Finally, we talked about where the best relative value opportunities exist today across the private asset universe, and also how origination and ESG factor into all of this. With that, please enjoy this conversation with John McNichols. All right, John McNichols, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Greg. Excited to have you here. We are uh, talking about private assets today, and uh, we're hopefully going to try to answer the question, do private assets provide shelter from the storm? Um, It's uh, 2022 has obviously been off to uh, quite the volatile start. Uh, It seems that we've got no shortage of things to worry about from the war in Ukraine to the Fed raising rates to inflation, right? Um, It's it's volatility and it's it's reasons to worry kind of everywhere you look. So maybe let's start there. Uh, I'd like to just ask you, uh, given this very volatile backdrop that we've seen, how are you seeing that kind of impact the longer term trend toward more and more allocations to private assets? Greg, we have seen little change in 
sponsor interest in private assets. Our fundraising continues to be good. Um, the interest in new asset classes and new strategies continues to be good. Uh, I think in general, the decision to invest in these asset classes tended to be a longer-term one. Uh, I suspect if the economy were to weaken considerably or there were to be much greater geopolitical turmoil, we'd all be anxious to determine whether that made a difference. But at this point, uh, I don't believe it's impacting too many investors' decisions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how about from an issuer standpoint? Have you seen any changes uh, in that front? No. uh, Private assets, whether it's direct lending or real estate lending or any other infrastructure lending, these markets tend to be, again, more stable, more long-term focused. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Terms and rates change, especially rates, change more slowly than they do in the public markets. Mm. And I think investors plan along a longer-term horizon. And given that the rates aren't changing radically, in some, in some cases, they're more interested to issue now because mm. they see uh, higher rates, higher spreads, I should say spreads. And they, you know, to, to them, with their spreads being relatively stable, they're viewing this as a good time to, to issue. And that's yeah. true across the board. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that point around the kind of long-term focus, is, I think, is an important one when it comes to, to private assets. Uh, because it seems to me, and we can talk more about this, but it seems to me that uh, you know many, if not all, of the stakeholders, from manager to investor to issuer, uh, tend to think on, at a bit of a longer-term uh, time horizon when you're comparing private assets to public assets. Um Let's talk about diversification. Tell me what you and the team at Bearings are doing uh, in terms of the universe of private assets you're investing into and how you think that that might ultimately help investors actually achieve diversification. Right. Well, I think in the world of private assets, historically, there have been three main buckets of risk. One is direct lending, which doesn't have a, a, a real long history, but has been out there for a while. The other is real estate, which mm-hmm. has been around forever. And the third is infrastructure debt, which has had a historically a pretty significant profile. We could count corporate private placements, but that market really isn't as big as those other three markets. And so uh, what we're seeing now is an increase, particularly in the area of consumer finance. So mm. the, the most important risk that you previously had less opportunity to take advantage of in private markets was the consumer. Mm. And whether it's residential finance or uh, student loan finance or consumer loan finance, those opportunities are growing significantly today. I would also suggest that there are different kinds of commercial risks as distinct from corporate risks, which we can access today for institutional investors. Things like uh, pools of finance loans for corporate vehicle fleets, um, you know, financing of any kind of small loan c- commercial finance asset. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the areas that are growing more rapidly and offer us greater opportunities to diversify. I would say there's, a, there's another aspect of diversification and resulting correlation that's important to talk about, and that's how these assets are valued and priced. So in the public markets, asset spreads change daily, <clears throat> and quite often they change daily for no really uh, good reason, at least as it relates to the ability or willingness of the issuers to pay. Sure. Right. Uh, in the old days, you could say Donald Trump tweets and spreads widen or tighten <laughs> as a result, right? Today, it's, you know, Russia invades a country yeah, and spreads yeah. widen or tighten. Now, down the road, there may be fundamental impacts on credit from both of those events. Mm-hmm. But in the short term, it's really hard to ascertain what those are typically. And, in, and it's also exaggerated. Uh, private assets don't do that. Private assets 
move, and they move with changes in interest rates, but they also move with changes in credit, only when we see that there's going to be a write-down. So as a result, the prices move in a different pattern than public assets, Mm -hmm. and in an empirical framework that most of our clients use for allocating assets, that provides a level of diversification over and above the different asset classes we can now invest in on the private side. Yeah, yeah. Now, investors have kind of long been able to achieve diversification in public fixed income markets. Do you get the sense that that, the ability to achieve that through some of the asset classes that you mentioned is getting kind of easier to achieve in private assets? It it is, and that's a good good point. And it leads to another good point, which is, at least the way we at Bearings view these opportunities, we view it less as an opportunity to increase return and more as an opportunity to reduce risk. Mm. So for instance, what we find in offering strategies, and some of these are, are customized. Many of the conversations we have are about customized strategies. And so when we talk to people about their expectations, what we find is that the general return buckets are the same, right? Sort of six to eight for sort of an intermediate risk product, 10 to 12 for a higher risk product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What has changed though, is that we are able to offer those strategies to investors with more asset classes within the private allocation and therefore greater diversification. And then I think both theoretically and practically lower risk. Hmm. And so and that, so that's an important point. This is generally speaking not an exercise in return enhancement, at least as far as how we're using it. It's an exercise in risk reduction. Um, okay, let's talk about the illiquidity premium. So we talked about diversification. You know, one of the other big attractions, of course, with private assets is the illiquidity premium. So uh, investors, uh, you know, giving up access to their capital for a certain amount of time to, uh, in theory, achieve a premium yield or return um, on their capital. So that's been a long-term attraction to private assets. I'm sure it continues to be today. But given everything that we talked about up front, whether you're talking about Russia, you're talking about rates, you're talking about inflation, uh, talk to me about what you've seen recently. Let's say, you know, even in the past six months, when it comes to that illiquidity premium. Yep. So it's definitely changed. I think it's important to understand some contextual information around the illiquidity premium. We talked earlier about how private investors and issuers tend to be longer term and focused. They tend to look through short-term volatility. And as a result, that means that the coupons and spreads that we demand and that issuers are paying tend to be more stable within risk categories. Um, What that means is that the... uh, the the illiquidity premium, which is defined as the amount of incremental spread you earn in a private asset over a public market comparable Mm -hmm. or public market equivalent. Uh, What that means is that the the variability in that illiquidity premium is actually driven by the public market for Mm. the most part. Mm. Private markets are are much more stable, and they'll stay stable even as public markets are bouncing around a lot underneath them. And so I would say for the bulk of the period of time, let's say the the pandemic period, which broadly defined was the two-year period, 20 and 21, we had very, very ample wide illiquidity premium because rates and spreads, after initially popping up on spreads, they came down quite a bit. And private markets really didn't. Now, private markets adjusted. They adjusted by basically not having any activity for a quarter or two during the beginning of the pandemic. So that's – Something that significant does affect behavior, but rather than change spreads in the near term, the market pauses Mm. and it watches and it waits to see what's going to happen. And there are different times, like particularly in the private placement market and the uh, uh, investment grade side, Mm -hmm. where you saw public market spreads widening to a point where there was really – 
fairly tight illiquidity premium mm. for, for private markets. Uh, but the market continued to function and people continued to issue. And now we've seen spreads come back. And so we're back at what I would call uh, an illiquidity premium, which is historically wide, but not nearly as wide as it was at the end of 2021. Okay. Okay. How about just looking at, you know, a, a credit uh, from a credit standpoint, what what do the defaults look like these days? And, and what, what are you seeing there like last several months or, or even year in private markets? And how does that compare to public markets? Well, it varies a little bit by uh, asset class, mm. but the uh, defaults in general continue to be quite low. Um, I think 2020 and 21 were remarkable to the extent the economy uh, was impacted so significantly by the pandemic. And yet, in most of our uh, private asset markets, you saw continued low defaults because defaults have been low coming into that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for this. And you know, one is which defaults in the entire economy have been low. And I think that's important to understand. So right. uh, models historically, historic models would have told you that defaults might have been higher given some of the things that have gone on, and they have not been. But in the private markets where you have uh, a couple of things going on, one, you have, uh, in, in our case, and I can't, I can't know what all private asset investors are doing, but in our case, we've got a pretty conservative underwriting uh, philosophy mm-hmm, across mm-hmm. our various businesses. Even when we're in risk markets, we take a conservative stance sure. to underwriting terms. And for that reason, as well as the just fundamental nature of private lending, where it's a smaller group of lenders, it's a stronger relationship between borrower and lender. Uh, we don't have time constraints related to the bankruptcy process and negotiation like you do in the public markets, that you you are able to avoid defaults if you work with the right partners mm. as, a, as a lender. And so our losses across the board have been very low, mm-hmm. lower than we would have expected under the circumstances. And that's a hidden opportunity, I think, for investors in private markets, especially if they go with a conservative um, underwriter of credit, mm-hmm. because that's value you get over and above the illiquidity premium. If you have lower losses than the public markets and you have a higher illiquidity premium, mm-hmm. or you have an illiquidity premium, mm-hmm. you're actually getting even more than you might think you're going to get on the front end. Yeah. That, it's almost a uh, it's almost an interesting case study. We look back at the last two years with COVID and now the Russia-Ukraine volatility. It's it's a really interesting case study because the asset class. I'm I'm thinking probably more specifically about direct lending here, mm-hmm. but the asset class has grown so significantly over the last decade. It is a fascinating case study to look at. Okay, how did the asset class actually perform from a kind of loss rate default perspective through? what was a really tough time. I mean, if you had looked back two years ago and said, okay, we're basically going to shut down the economy. We're going to have major supply chain issues. We're going to have, you know, so many challenges, right? Uh, I I would think it it would give you all uh, even more of a boost of confidence going forward that the asset class has kind of weathered the storm that well. I think it does from an asset class perspective. That's right. Now, from a from a competitive standpoint, uh, you kind of wish that other people had had defaults and you hadn't. And I think that's one of the one of the challenges sponsors have these days. Is I think they've they've hired managers, and those managers are alike in some ways and different in some ways. But without defaults and losses, it's really hard to determine who's doing a good yeah, job. It's yeah. hard to tease out value added and skill. And so, uh, but I think that to one of your earlier comments on diversification opens the door to investors say, well, if I have this group of investors, I've, I've got a lot of direct lending and my managers are, nobody's having defaults and any difference in return is really yep. just a function of the risk they took, not mm. the way in which they took it. 
that's an opportunity to diversify, to go in and say, okay, well, I can add additional asset classes, reduce my risk, and, and, and not change my expected return. Um, that's, we're seeing some of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, let me come back to that one in one second because I want to I I ask you a follow-up question on that. But maybe first, let's t- just talk about rates and inflation because it's, it's such a um, – uh, topical area. It's something that investors are wrestling with, um, you know, especially in their fixed income uh, allocation. So when you look at what's available to invest in from a private standpoint today, um, are there opportunities there to help to um, solve that either rate and or inflation conundrum that the folks are facing in their fixed income allocations? Well, there are, you know, and in, in, again, theoretically, they're not really different than you get in the public markets. But one of the differences could be access to some of these. Uh, one of the differences could be the ability to custom structure these. So the first, the first one is is the availability of floating rate product. Mm-hmm. So in in our real estate business, uh, especially in the non core area of the business, uh, it's heavily floating rate. Mm. Um, uh, direct lending is all floating rate. Not not entirely. When you get out there's some old school mezzanine and deals where you, you know, the, the sort of junior capital transactions where it becomes more of a fixed rate exercise. Okay. And in the private asset backed and resi finance world, there's a lot of floating rate product. Mm. Um, probably more so than in the public market because in the public market, especially on the investment grade side, that's all fixed rate. And so, so you probably have some greater access to floating rate uh, product. And then we also have the ability to negotiate uh, with invest with borrowers who are trying to be flexible, right? We have the chance to say, well, we'd like this to be floating. Sure. Um, um, you also have some asset classes like real estate uh, access to, you know, and and you can get access to real estate in the public markets through CMBS, but it's not the same. Like it, there's a there's a real negative selection process at work, and so the the assets that are available in the private market on the real estate side are just they tend to be superior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You were kind of alluding to this a little bit earlier, but I want to talk about where you're seeing opportunities today. So mm-hmm. I'm sure that every uh, client is, is different in terms of their constraints and their expectations. So I want to give that sort of caveat to start, but with with that as kind of a background yep. or disclaimer, so to speak, um, you know, where are you seeing opportunities or particular value today in, in this broad universe that you're looking at? Good question. Um, it's a good question in part because it's been changing, mm-hmm. right? I would say for the balance of the last two years, Year and a half, I say prior to the end of 2021, we were very big on on some of the consumer um, asset backed segments. Uh, for one, they were there. It's a relatively new segment in our market. Uh, there aren't as many managers who can access it. I mean, the, the public market and banks have been funding these for years, mm. but the, the ability of an institutional investor like like Bearings to access this for third party clients is newer than some of these other segments. And the reason was the, the consumer loan lending market was much more heavily regulated than other parts of the lending market, both mortgage and other types of consumer loans. And in the aftermath of the financial crisis of a dozen years ago, more than a dozen now, um, there was a great deal of new regulation and constraints put on that market. So that market was much slower to recover. And therefore, you know, the, the consumer was in much better shape from a mm. borrowing standpoint. And so from a credit standpoint, these assets were just really, really attractive. They were a little cheap to ratings, if you will, compared to other market segments. But but really the value is in the the quality of the credits because the losses were low and we expected them to remain low for the reasons I described. 
that that hasn't changed radically, but it's changed a little bit. The consumer is starting to borrow again. Okay. I think uh, you know the the economy is heated up, uh, wages are up, people are spending, and you're starting to see some cracks in that. We don't expect anything significant, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. we no longer see the underlying credits as more attractively positioned in the cycle than the corporate side. Got it. So what we see now for value as you know again, if if an investor can go anywhere. And, and setting aside what their return objectives are, the places where we see the greatest relative value, I think some of the value-added, uh, core plus and value-added commercial real estate transactions we're seeing now are really attractive. Mm. Again, we view corporate core mortgages as AA equivalent assets. And core plus mortgages, think of those as sort of triple B assets. Value-added mortgages, think of those like double B. And you can get at spreads well in excess of corporate double B levels in the value-added segment, you know, 100 to 150 wide of those levels with significant asset protection, conservative mm-hmm. structuring, um, and the ability to, again, cherry pick the properties. And so unlike on the public side where people get access to commercial mortgages through CMBS, mm-hmm. we pick the properties that we like. And we've been doing this for you know 50 years mm-hmm. for our parent, Mass Mutual. We have a team spread out across the country. And we understand neighborhoods. We understand, you know, everything about these markets and the properties. And so we're finding great value yep. there. And, and outside the country as well. And outside the country. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Pretty big, um, very yeah. big operation yeah. in Europe and that's right. uh, increasingly big yeah. in Asia the, the as more, well. more recently, we've been looking at some U.S. transactions. And even in segments like hotels, which mm-hmm. have been beaten up quite a bit, uh, we're able to find some properties that – we just think are, are home runs. Mm-hmm. And yet, they're still being forced to borrow at levels that are wider than mm. some of the other properties. So that's one thing. Uh, I guess another would be in some of the core areas, we're finding direct lending uh, in Europe to be more attractive than in the U.S., okay. particularly for U.S. investors uh, where you can lend money in Europe and then hedge that back to dollar and pick up additional basis points there. Um, but but even in Europe, we find that although I think the economic outlook in Europe is a little cloudier sure. than the U.S. right now, um, there's just less risk in the deals. Not not by a lot, but some jurisdictionally and creditors' rights uh, tend to be a little better for lenders in certain places in Europe, like mm-hmm. the U.K. and France. So there's that. Um, there's also you know for the risk, there tends to be a little less for the business risk. There tends to be a little less leverage on the deals we're buying over there. Um, and the spreads have been, you know, for a while now, a little bit wider. And all those factors combine to have us favor European um, assets over U.S. assets. Yeah. Right now, indirect, uh, indirect lending. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are two. Those are two thoughts. And I would say, although it's not, it's a pretty low yielding asset class, and most total return investors and pension investors don't really have an interest. We we buy a lot of these for our insurance clients or core mortgages. Mm. Uh, you know, again, core mortgages are double A risk. And, you know, with spreads 150 over for AA corporate risk, that's a meaningful illiquidity premium, if you will. They also have a lot of duration and very stable duration, which is good for most investors. You know, the, the world, as we hear a lot about, has a shortage of duration. Well, this is a way to, to shore that up. And there are different ways to access that. But it's, it's a market that a lot of people overlook because the spreads are tight in absolute terms. But in terms of the law, you know, when you risk adjust those spreads and you look at the duration you get, it's, it's an absolutely fantastic asset for any investor who, who wants duration and spread from high quality assets. Mm-hmm. 
Um, let me ask you uh, a little bit about the role that origination plays in all of this, because obviously, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, uh, value add real estate, you mentioned, you know, an, uh, an asset class or a sector like hotels, or even if you're talking about something like direct lending uh, in different geographies, obviously you need to get access to these investments in some way, shape, or form, right? Um, they're not off the shelf. They're not bought off exchanges. Um, these are directly originated um, assets, right? Um, so tell me a little bit about that, uh, the role that origination plays and how you think about origination when it comes to constructing a private asset portfolio. I think some of this is is widely understood, but it literally is true if you're managing a public portfolio, the, the two guys in a Bloomberg model works because you can see every security in the market on your screen. You can call a dozen brokers or go online and and access virtually anything, right? At the same, and you have this, it's not literally true, but theoretically you have the same access to supply or investments that BlackRock or PIMCO have. Mm-hmm. And that's really not true in private markets, right? It, there's a lot of expensive infrastructure that is required to access the products that or the investments that we access across the platform. And while there are differences by asset class and by geography, um, you know, you if you're going to do something in a diversified way, you, you've got to have a big firm because the combined resources required to maintain these across different asset classes is really significant. And there probably aren't that many firms in the world who who have that. And so you know, origination is really important at the asset class level, but when you are thinking or talking about diversified portfolios, multi-asset private portfolios, uh, it's really ramped up because uh, it, it's a very expensive proposition to do that. And so, why is it? You know, why does that matter? Because you've got to have relationships with private equity sponsors, with uh, banks, with borrowers themselves, and you've got to manage those really in a one-on-one way in order to be their preferred partner when it comes to financing. Mm. And so, again, it means different things for different groups. Like our direct lending group has relationships with virtually all the middle market lending, uh, middle market PE firms globally. Mm-hmm. That's how we access the product. We have a team of you know, a couple dozen originators who spend all their time working with those firms trying to provide or, or, or discuss solutions in real estate. And those people work out of London and Charlotte and Chicago for the most part. Real estate's different. Real estate, we have originators all over the globe, as you pointed out earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a different model. You've got to be local in real estate, but it's the same idea because they are uh, every day creating and 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 growing relationships with uh, real estate owners, with bankers that are local because real estate's a much more local business. Um, and and what happens is when you get this installed base, if you will, of origination and relationships. Uh, you start to generate a lot of your investment flow through existing relationships as opposed mm. to uh, new new deals, right, new sponsors, right. new new owners of new new property owners. I would say in our direct lending business, for instance, which we've referenced a lot here today, um, I, I haven't seen the numbers yet for 2021, but I know in 2020 and 2019, we probably generated between 35 and 45 percent of all of our volume from existing borrowers. Meaning that we were able to, you know, grow our business through additional borrowings from the same companies, mm. and that's a 
that's wow. a win-win, yeah. right? That that allows us because if we have the longer we know a borrower, the better we know them, sure. and the more confidence we can have in the credit decision. Um, and it's good for them because everything happens quicker, right? We don't have to get to know the company again from ground up. We get to continue to grow with them as they grow, and so that installed base of 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 supply, if you will, really works to the benefit yeah. of yeah. of our investors and and for bearings. And, and the other thing, which is, I think, I'm not sure how new this is, but uh, that is becoming more important is as, as some of our we and our competitors grow is we're actually acquiring origination arms th- as equity investments, um, whether it's through our parent or through you know the BDCs we own, and, and and we're not alone in doing this. We're actually looking at you know generating returns from equity investments in originators, but also gaining access to the loans that they are originating on a first look basis. So, so which asset classes would that be? Well, yeah. it could be consumer finance. It mm-hmm. could be commercial finance. Uh, we, it's, I think it's it's public that we bought in our BDC and our parent uh, commercial finance company. Mm-hmm. That company goes out and makes loans, which we will now have the ability to sort of determine from a credit perspective: Do we want to buy those loans? At the same time, uh, that 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 we'll be benefiting from the equity investment as that company grows, um, and so. That type of I think you use this reference in a conversation we had earlier, a flywheel effect, yeah. I think will be really important to our business going forward across the platform. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's sort of um, being there right from the start of the origination of the asset all the way through the full kind of life cycle of the asset. And, yep. it, and we would, of course, independently underwrite all those loans. So it's important that we maintain that discipline because not everything they do we will have a place for or think is appropriate mm-hmm. for our accounts. And so, but what it does is just gives us an additional source of potential asset flow if it fits our underwriting criteria and the capital base that we have from our clients. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, speaking of underwriting assets, uh, we haven't talked about ESG yet. So um, obviously ESG is major focus at bearings, major focus for our clients uh, and the industry at large. Tell me about um, how ESG factors into all of this. If it's in, if there's anything different um, versus, you know, let's say what Bearings is doing on the public market side. Um, but how are you thinking about ESG when you're constructing these um, private asset portfolios? Well, you know, we have ESG uh, ratings and criteria in each of our origination platforms, and and they're a little different. And I would say the platforms are at different stages of life when it comes to their ESG analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we have those individual uh, criteria screenings that we would just do because we're bearings, right? Because this is what we do. But proactively, you know, within the different segments, and this is true both from a single asset portfolio as well as multi-strat, we're doing some things that are pretty interesting. And and frankly, our opportunities in at least one or two cases, you can't do in public markets. So for instance, um, in our direct lending business, we pioneered the use I think what has come to be called ratchet loans. Mm-hmm. But what they do is give the investor incentives to meet certain goals with respect to whether it's diversity on the board or other criteria that, uh, that will benefit their financial profile if they meet. Mm-hmm. In other words, we'll give them a lower interest rate to the extent that they meet some of these goals. We we were the first one to put these ratchet loans, ratchet loans in place. We've since done, I think, 15 of these, yeah. I guess. Started in Europe and then I think has, yep. has expanded to other it, regions. And it's now. a little bit more, uh, I think, accepted in Europe at this point. Mm-hmm. I think there's been a little slower uptake in the U.S. Mm-hmm. on it. Um, quite honestly, personally, I put them in every deal. 
We actually have some borrowers who don't want them because if they're there, they even if there's no negative explicit cost to not meeting them. Uh, I think some people just feel uncomfortable having them in there if they don't really have an intent of, okay. of doing it. But but I think over time, you'll continue to see this grow. And I think eventually they will become commonplace. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that proliferates out to other asset classes. Well, it's interesting. In some of the other asset classes, take commercial real estate, for instance, um, there is already a significant uh, market for, I'll call it greener assets. And part of that's because uh, much of what we do, for instance, on the value-added side is is upfits. You know, a developer will buy a property for a hundred million dollars, and they'll have a plan to put another hundred million in it. Totally change the property, and as part of that, there are often incentives for those people to do so in a green way. Yes. yes. For one, they can charge more in rent. Two, there could be local market subsidies for these kinds of activities. It's also in commercial real estate. What is different about that asset class is that it's you can actually measure some of these things mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you know the energy usage, the, the overall carbon footprint, the water usage, all of the various aspects that go into kind of being LEED certified. Mm-hmm. That's all measurable. Yep. And so we actually have a significant real estate equity operation as well where this is an even bigger uh, part of their process. But we're, So we're able to measure a lot of this stuff, and so that gives you the ability to – uh, look out and and look at not just the current status of a building, but the improvement and how it's going to get better over yeah, time. Yeah. So it's almost um, kind of happening at the, or it is happening at the asset level. And it, it it's, so maybe it's a little less appropriate for it to be happening at the, as part of a financing mechanism necessarily. Well, yeah, exactly. We don't, we don't need to do it. So we're not going to offer them a lower coupon if they're already doing something mm-hmm. anyway. And they'll come to us with a deal that has this baked into it. Yeah. Right. And so. Yeah. To your point, I think that is a lot of the the actual value add that is happening is, yes. is yes. In, in, improving yep. the energy efficiency in all of these different measures of that's, these properties. That's right. And and on the infrastructure, if we shift over to infrastructure debt, uh, for a long time now, so-called green bonds have been a significant part of that market. Now, mm-hmm. they've been there a long time and they've been somewhat overbought in our opinion. So you know, when we have a choice, we're not always buying those bonds uh, because we think you're not getting paid for the risk. Mm. But we do occasionally, and we do try to. But that market it has has over time, just almost like a sub market within this broader market, become very big and very substantial. And we invest in that market, um, but there are times when it's it's rich, and yeah. we just don't think investors are getting paid. Well, th- that's really interesting. I mean, I, I think almost like everything that we've discussed, it seems like ESG. Uh, you have maybe more of an ability to customize uh, in private assets than you that's do right. relative to to public markets. And I know, you know, Bering's philosophy across the board on ESG is much more focused on engagement and kind of being very actively engaged with issuers um, on the public and private side. But it seems like on the private side, you potentially have an even greater ability to influence issuers, whether it's through things like ESG ratchets and the actual financing mechanism, or to your point, uh, to really improve the assets um, themselves. Maybe as a final question, I'll just ask you kind of what's next. So you've watched this whole space evolve, um, and uh, I'm curious kind of where do you think the market goes next from here? I think we've talked more about the investors' benefits from private financing, and, and that's important. I think investors, you know, starting with private equity, I think over the last 20 years, people started to see – value added versus public equities. And I think that has now spread. And so there's a desire on the part of the investor to access those higher returns 
more diversification, lower risk. But I think what will continue to really drive this is the interest in borrowers and private solutions. Mm. And so that speed and that customization that you talked about, the relationship orientation, you know, public markets look great until you factor in all the real costs, both on the front end and potentially on the back end. And so I think that's going to drive the growth in the markets generally. Um, what is it going to look like for investors? I think, and this is my personal view, historically, private markets for, for institutional investors, you know, for whether it's DB, even to some extent insurance companies, they've gotten this exposure. They started out getting this exposure through funds, right? And then very large investors were able to access SMAs. Um, and then as you grew and you increased your allocation, you'd add additional managers, you'd take additional fund interest, LP interest. And so right now you have private exposure, which has grown to significant levels. I mm-hmm. mean, it's def- differs on the market. You know, I think in the endowment and foundation market, it's like 40, 50, 60%. Mm-hmm. You know, in the, in the pension market, generally it's lower, maybe it's 10 to 12%, but that's up a lot. You know, that's sort of up tenfold in the last 10 years, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and as it continues to grow, and I think it will, I think the way in which people have gotten access is going to change. I think this sort of proliferation of LP interests and different managers, the problem changes geometrically, the challenge geometrically as you increase the number of asset classes. Mm-hmm. What I see, because I see a lot of benefits to it, and, and this is certainly talking my book, <laughs> but I see an opportunity for managers like Bearings mm-hmm. and a handful of other global managers to offer multi-asset solutions to investors, which which focus on on value added to the investor in a number of different ways. And frankly, higher returns probably aren't even one of them. But mm-hmm. diversification mm-hmm. You know, a, a, as a way of optimizing around a target return level, you can do that. I think there are a lot of logistical and, and other value added benefits to this to the, to the investor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We can consolidate reporting. Yep. Um, we can improve the ability to deploy assets. You know, the downside of private investing has always been the J curve, the fact that you have to put a lot of money in the ground before you start to get their money back. And if you have one manager who's overseeing an omnibus account, if you will, of different asset classes, there's a much more efficient deployment process that can take place by planning based upon realization and other factors related to the maturity of, say, one asset class or one asset and deployment into another. Mm -hmm. You remove the need to get every investment approved by your investment committee. You know, I think one of the things we hear from investors is every time they do a fund interest, they have to get it approved. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be great to have an evergreen fund that we didn't have to get approved all the time that we could just recycle our capital and then we want to get we want to get out we'll tell you and you you let us you know realize our investment and then go go on our way well i think that's a that's a great idea too but i think across different asset classes if you could do have the same kind of effect but do it across different asset classes i think there's a lot of value to the sponsor a lot of uh, not just efficiency but also mm-hmm. value added you get better asset allocation uh, whether it's asset allocation that we drive with our ideas or asset allocation that the investor drives with their ideas, the ability to uh, make those decisions and then execute and deploy, I think, is much improved over having multiple managers, multiple fund interests, you know, where you have to pair off these these things. It's just a lot more work for the investor. Yeah. So I think that is coming. We've had inquiries that way. Uh, we've mm-hmm. grown mm-hmm. our business, I think, because of those factors. And I see that continuing uh, down the road. 
That's great context, though. I mean, both from the borrower perspective, we didn't get much into that in this conversation, but I think your points around speed and customization being really uh, attractive options for borrowers is an important one. But as well, your point around, hey, listen, like it seems like private assets are only becoming a greater and greater portion of uh, institutional investors' portfolios. And that comes with many, many challenges uh, in terms of even, you know, just, you know, simple things like, well, simple, I say, but but things like reporting um, and in uh, making allocation changes across different managers and all that kind of stuff. So it seems like uh, what you're saying there in terms of uh, consolidating relationships and trying to do it much more efficiently uh, it makes a makes a ton of sense. So I think you're going to be a busy guy for a long time, John. And I, I hope think so. I think your team uh, your team as well. So well, listen, uh, this was a great first conversation on this topic. Um, I'd like to dive deeper on this topic and maybe go deeper on some of the specific threads that we. We went down here. So let's do a follow-up uh, if you're up for it. But uh, listen, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I'd love to. And thank you for having me on. It's been great. Thanks. Thanks for listening to episode number six of season six of Streaming Income. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, please make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.